Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Bondi and the home of eight years old Graham Thorne, whose kidnapping is the first the state has known. 
and a big squad of uniformed police and detectives make a house-by-house -house investigation, asking men, women and children if they've seen the missing boy. But no one saw Graham in those vital few minutes when the kidnapper snatched him from the street. The kidnapping of the £100,000 lottery winner's son was a carefully planned crime. As police continue their search for information, the kidnapper phones Mrs. Thorne and demands £25,000 ransom. If you're into history, there's a pretty good chance you've read some of Peter Fitzsimons' books about significant Australian events and people. He's one of this country's best-selling authors, so of course you probably have. Now, Peter has turned to writing about an iconic structure, the Sydney Opera House, and its history is as dramatic as any opera that's been performed there. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Now, you may be wondering why are we talking about a building on a true crime podcast? Well, here's why. There's a significant, tragic true crime case that's linked to the Opera House. And when it happened more than 60 years ago, it shocked Australia. Peter is here to tell us about this case, which he's featured in the Opera House. But we start with Peter telling us what he really wanted to call this book. I wanted to call the book The Opera House, comma, where the fuck did that thing come from anyway? You know, and so that was the theme of 1950s Australia. Well, 1950s Sydney was possibly the dullest place on earth. Everything was meat and three veg, surrounded by a white picket fence and, you know, reasonable affluence, I guess, after after the Second World War, people felt blessed to be alive. And somewhere, somehow, the dullest place on earth said, you know what, let's build not only an opera house, but let's build an architectural jewel for the ages, a masterpiece that will be hailed around the world for I reckon centuries to come. So that was what fascinated me to try to get to the bottom of that and to have all the attendant stories in that, all these extraordinary stories that go into the building of this masterpiece. It seems very visionary and you're right because 1950s Australia, look, I wasn't alive during them, but it Australia did seem pretty boring back then. Well, we had this guy, Eugene Goosen, who was a European conductor, ABC, the ABC's concerts were a very big deal. So he comes out in the late 1940s. Australia loved him. Sydney swooned, said, why don't you come back? You can be the dean of the conservatorium. You can be the conductor for the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. You can be the big hotshot European in Sydney. So he comes out with his glamorous wife. And after a while, you know, he's enjoying it. But he says to the premier, Joe Carl, who was a really working class, born and bred, pretty much, I think, in the same house, we're living in the same house as premier that he'd been in as a little boy in Marrickville, which is a very working class suburb, or at least was. And he says to the premier, we need to build an opera house. Now, the premier uh, was a man whose idea of a good time on a Saturday night was munching on a sausage sandwich at the Wentworth Park dog races. You know, like he was that kind of a man, which good luck to him. But unlikely that a man that was seriously working class and representing the working class would go, you know, would put any money towards something like the opera. 
And yet he did. And when he's, there was an outcry about how dare you, and in, they included one of his daughters who was a nun who said, Father, why, why, you know, we're, we're trying to help the poor and the benighted. Why are you doing this? And he said, because my opera house, this opera house will not be a place for just women in mink coats and men in black tie. This will be for the workers. This is going to be open for everybody. I want the workers of Sydney, the workers of New South Wales to have the best of everything. So we're going to build this opera house. But he was very clever about it because instead of saying, okay, everybody, we're going to take money from the hospitals and the roads and the schools and we're going to build an opera house, he, he knew he couldn't get that through. The only way to do it, Australians weren't fussed on opera, they weren't fussed on ballet, but they loved gambling. Oh, so the idea was we'll have not just a, a, an opera house lottery with big prizes, we're going to have prizes like you've never seen before. Instead of winning £10,000, putting a pound out to get a, a, a lottery ticket, it's £10, but listen, you can win £100,000. You can win a lifetime's earnings it was brilliant. People lined up around the block, you know, to to get to part of the Opera House Lottery. And that's what powered the building of the Opera House. And so the other interesting thing about this was that it was the age of innocence. We had had in the history of Australia, we'd had, I think, one kidnapping in the 1930s that went nowhere, but it was so innocent. You know, people could send their children to school and not blink. There was no stranger danger. And it was so innocent that when the first winners of the Opera House lottery came through, we put them on the front page. Here they are. And in the case of the Thorne family, and they lived at 79 Edward Street, Bondi, and they were the 10th winners. And there they are on the front page. I think it was the 1st of June. They, this family has won £100,000. Here they are, free, Basil and Frieda Thorne, and here's their eight-year-old son, Graham, and here's their three-year-old daughter, Belinda, and good luck to them. And that was the 1st of June, and the money was going to come through, I think it was the 7th or 8th of July, and about two weeks in, uh, there was a strange call. Frieda Thorne lifts up the phone. Is, is, this, uh, is this, this residence, is this the right number? It was just a strange call thickly accented, she put down the phone and wasn't sure what that was about and it only came to her later. But then we come to 7th of July, I think it was, that he goes, they send their boy, they send their beautiful boy off to school and the way it worked would be he'd go out the door, turn left and go down, down, he'd walk 300 yards to a local corner shop and he'd get himself a packet of chips, as you do, and he would be picked up by a friend of the family's, Phyllis Smith, and be taken to Scott's Junior School. So on this day, unbeknownst, they, they, off he goes to school, and then this, this car pulls up with this European man, recent immigrant Stephen Bradley of Hungarian birth, and says, look, I've been sent by your mother to, to take you to school. What? Well, you know, Mrs. Smith, Phyllis Smith can't, can't make it today, so I've got to take you to school. In the age of innocence, the eight-year-old boy gets in the car mm. and then he that, off they go and then he starts to panic when they're going through Centennial Park and he says, this is Mr. Mr. This is not the way to get to Scott's Junior School. This is not the way Mrs. Smith takes me. 
basically, and at that point, exactly what happens is not clear, but I suspect he grabs the boy, puts chloroform over his face to knock him out. Then he, uh, what we do know is he puts him in the boot. Meanwhile, back at the corner shop, Phyllis Smith has turned up and little Graham's not there. So she sends one of her sons into the corner store to say, well, what's going on? Where, where is he? He comes back and says, well, mum, he's not there. So she goes to the school and says, where is he? And then she calls Frida Thorne and says, where's, where's Graham? Can't find him. And so there's a sort of a panic and they go to the school, can't find him. Meantime, so at, then at 9.47 a.m. that morning, she's back at Bondi trying to quell the panic. You know, this is what's, what's going on. This is my worst nightmare. But when I say worst nightmare, the truth of it is it wasn't really a nightmare because people didn't have that. That wasn't in the range of things. Now it's our worst nightmare because we know these things can happen. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say because you know we're still a few years away from like the Beaumont children at this stage, which obviously is really freaked Australians out. But you know, the Thorns, as you described them, they were very average family. I mean, they live in Bondi, but back then you didn't have to be rich to live in Bondi, obviously. So who were the Thorns? Like what what kind of family were they? They were a very quiet living family. You know, they were just they were just Mr. and Mrs. Joe Average living in a Joe Average house with, you know, Joe Average rent. And they had an elder daughter that had a disability. She sort of shows up in some of the accounts, but just I think she'd been put in an institution and they were looking. So they were trying to look after her and they just lived a very, very quiet life. He was a basically a salesperson. And so on the first, when, when he first got the news that he'd won, I think he was at Grafton, Kempsey up that way, when the phone call comes, which says, you know, you've won £100,000. And then when the next phone call comes, when he comes, when he, he's also up that way, when he comes back through the airport, call home, he calls home, what's going on? And then the news breaks, your son is missing. So at nine, what had happened was at 9.47am that morning, this thickly accented voice says, I want to speak to the, the man of the house. And so by this point, Mrs Thorne has the police that are there and one of the sergeants says, give it to me, give it to me. So yes, yes. And he says, I've got your son. I want £25,000 um, or, or, or I'll feed him to the sharks. And... At this point, the the sergeant, who the policeman, doesn't know about that they're the same family that won £100,000 and, well, where am I going to get £25,000? You'll find a way. And so, so begins this shocking saga where Sydney is, as you'd imagine, uh, just aflame with where is the child? And so begins the biggest manhunt, except it was a boy hunt, in Australian history and you had... You had psychics getting involved. You had, I think there was 300 police that were, were involved in the, in the initial few days. The criminal underworld was, you know, contacted, what do you know? And the criminal underworld basically said, listen, we'll do drugs, we'll do murders, we'll knock off hitmen, we'll, we'll, we'll do bashings, we'll, if necessary, we'll, we'll knock people over the head in the back lines of the King's Cross. But we've got, we do have some standards. We're not taking little boys off the street and doing this shit. And we can tell you if we find who did this shit, they'll answer to us. So there was this sort of united outpouring of grief, rage, wonderment. They were stunned that such a thing had happened in, in Sydney, Australia. I watched the footage of Basil Thorne at the press conference talking about his son. Like he is absolutely devastated. And, 
you describe it well in the book, there's that innocence of, of hope yep. where they're like, oh, you know, he'll be back. And then they found little Graham's kind of school suitcase, didn't well, they? And this is this is it. So that you know, and it had to be for the for the for the classic tale, it had to be a Globot suitcase. You're probably too young to remember, but I'm not. When you were, if you were a serious school kid in 1960s Australia, you had a Globot, and you had and and his not only was a Globot, but his parents had paid the money to have his name on it, G Thorn, and in Sydney we have. Uh, so we everybody knows Sydney Harbour, but about 10 kilometres to the north, you've got the spit, the, the body of water that goes across and the spit bridge is famous. Up the other side of the hill is Seaforth um, and up beyond that is a place called the Wakehurst Parkway. So within a few, a Wakehurst Parkway, which is basically a road that goes through heavy bush on both sides. So a few days after he goes missing, the they somebody's on the Wakehurst Parkway and they see this abandoned suitcase and not far away, they find the remains of the boy's lunch. And, you know, they, there was a particular way that Frieda Thorne had would do the apples. Now, my mother never did the apples that way, but I used to envy kids where their mother or the father, no doubt, but basically in the 1960s it was the mother, would peel the apple around and around so that when you got to lunch you could take your apple peel off and have the apple without the peel. My mother wanted us to eat the peel. But anyway, there was the apple. They identified the apple. They identified they worked out what's missing. This is no doubt the kid's school case. And then... It was about a month after that that three little boys are playing in the dying light of a weekday, and this by this point it must have been early August, and there's a cave nearby and they're on Grandview Parade Seaforth, just north of the Spit Bridge, and then they, they suddenly see just near the cave, they can see this this wrapped something wrapped in a blanket, and one of them pulls back, you know, a bit of the blanket and sees a human head, you know, a buzz boy and runs to, t- and they all run off and two of the two of the kids tell their mothers and two of the fathers come out and then it's lights, cameras, action, choppers, police, searchlight, floodlights, they found the child. And can you imagine, none of us can, nobody no. can imagine the devastation of the knock on the door at 79 Edward Street to say, we found a body, we think it's your son, just beyond horror. Coming up on Australian True Crime, we find out how detectives tracked down the person who kidnapped Bondi schoolboy Graham Thorne. We'd like to thank the following people for their support on Patreon, and forgive my pronunciations. Anne C, Simone Kendall, Natalie Constantin, Elizabeth Fitos, Kate Melville, Cara Poltz, Bella, Janet Carl, and Deborah Bailey. We really appreciate your support. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's how detectives piece together the identity of the kidnapper and killer of schoolboy Graham Thorne. The, the one particularly leading the charge was Detective Sergeant John Roy Coleman. And he had a child roughly the same age as Graham Thorne, and he felt it personally. It was, this is, you know, how dare this person do this, kill this child. And so while, while other police, you know, they'd had a huge exercise to try to track down the killer and weren't making progress, but this guy felt it personally and he didn't give up. And he keeps going. And so one of the things that is done is they get the blanket in which the dead child has been wrapped up. And instead of saying this is a particular, you know, a blanket was just a blanket, well, hang on, there's particular patterns on this blanket. How many of these blankets have been sold in Australia? Where is it from? What, what's on it? Let's put it under the microscope. And they work out, I think there'd only been 5,000 of this particular type of blanket had been had been sold in Australia. I mean, it, it, that I think from memory, mostly in Melbourne. But most, what the most important thing they worked out was the microfibers on this blanket showed blonde hair. It showed the hair of a Pekingese dog. It showed a particular type of grass, the leaves from two particular cypress trees and pink mortar. So here we go. This is where the body, we don't know where the body came from, you know, where where it was. But what we do know, this blanket has come from a place which looks like this. And so I mentioned to you earlier, the Spitbridge and Seaforth, just near Seaforth, the biggest post office is the Balgala post office. So, So this guy, Detective Sergeant Coleman, goes to the Balgala Post Office and says, I want to see all your posties. Why do you want to see? I want to see all your posties now. So he gets them in a room and he says, blokes, I need your help. We found this body. We've done our forensic research on this blanket and you're the nearest post office to where we found the body. So what I'm looking for, I'm looking for a house that's got pink mortar. There's probably a, a blonde person that lives inside, probably the woman, I would guess, blonde, blonde woman, because it's a long blonde hair. The dogs of a, the, the hairs of a Pekingese dog, and these here are the two cypress trees that you're looking for. Now, does that ring any bells with anybody? And, and what's looking back at him is a sea of no reaction. Absolutely, he's looking, hoping one postie will say, 
Oh, geez, you don't mean that. Oh, yeah, yeah, got it, got it. But nothing. Anyway, other blokes may well have dropped off and said, no, well, that's that's it, that there's no, you know, there's no way to go. They, I fought the good fight and there's no nowhere there. And this guy doesn't drop off. He keeps going. He keeps looking around. He keeps knocking on doors. And one day, about a month later, he's he's pursuing an old lead when a postie comes up. And he was being one of the posties of the uh, at the Balgola Post Office. He said, "Ah, oh, I remember you. You, you came to, you came to see us a month ago." He said, "Yeah." He said, "Did my mate my my mate get a hold? My mate Jacko get a hold of you? No, no, no." Jacko, no. come on. <laughs> And he said, no. Oh, I said, well, what, why? And he said, oh, well, he, he reckons he knows the house. So amazingly, you know, he pursues it. He gets the address of the house and he start, He goes to the house. I think, strangely, I remember being quite confused when I was doing it, um, that I would have thought in my circumstance, if somebody told me that, I would go there absolutely immediately that that's not what happened on this case, but but I think he uh, he took him the weekend thinking about it, how he was going to do it. But anyway, the house is identified at as number twenty eight Moore Street in the suburb of Clontarf, which is about 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 a mile, just a mile from where they'd found the body. So on the Monday, this by this time we're third of October, nineteen sixty. He turns up and he looks at the house, and it's exactly absolutely exactly as he had imagined it would be and the the traces of mud when they go into the garage exactly match the traces on the on the blanket they knock on the door and it turns out that the place had a month there were new tenants in this rented house well where's the old tenant who is it his name is Stephen Bradley he's a Hungarian and it turned out he owned an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line, which was exactly the type of car that, that had been seen in the area where Graham Thorne was snatched. And hang on, do they, did they have a pet? Yes. What kind of a pet was it? It was a Pekingese dog. Right. And do you happen to know what, what colour his wife's hair was? Yes, it was dyed blonde hair. Bushka, they've got their man. Where is he now? They make their inquiries. Turns out that he was on a ship heading back to Europe and that he was on the SS Himalaya and they'd let, had left Australia for London only a week earlier. So this by, by this point, we're early October, they'd left on the 26th of September. And so on the Monday, the 10th of October, when the ship pulls in to Colombo in, uh, well, Ceylon then, Sri Lanka we know now, Two Sydney policemen, Sergeants Brian Doyle and Jack Bateman, had flown on ahead. They're waiting at the bottom of the gangplank. And is your name Stephen Bradley? Yes, why? You're under arrest for suspected murder of Graham Thorne. They then, by their account, he makes a verbal confession to them um, that he did it. They get him on a uh, they get him on a plane, and as they're flying in, you know, you know, you've got to fill out the form. What's your address? You know, what's your what's your occupation? What's your address? They say he says to the two detectives to whom he's handcuffed. Well, what do I write down for my address? They said just send it care of <laughs> Sydney Police. That's who you, that's who will be looking after you for the next few months. Oh my God! I was going to say, Peter. I wanted to go back a bit to the evidence. And as you said, it was quite an extraordinary investigation. But, you know, when we were talking about, you know, they've just got no leads, 
But there was a woman who played a very important part in helping them, wasn't there? I was going to say maybe it needs a woman to crack this case, Peter, because there was a a botanist, wasn't there? Oh, yes, the, the, the Sydney University botanist. And in a small cottage tucked away in a quiet corner of Sydney's Botanic Gardens, a patient woman did supply the much-needed breakthrough. We found that there were two plants which proved to be of significance that we knew as garden plants were not present at the uh, site where Graham Thorne's body was found and uh, therefore must have been uh, attached to the rug and clothing uh, somewhere else. She was able to identify not one cypress tree, but two different types of cypress tree to go with, you know, the other information they had on the pink mortar and the Pekingese dog and the blonde hair and all that. So you've got these tiny specks, what to an ordinary eye would be tiny specks of nothing, but to forensic detectives, forensic scientists, forensic medical people, forensic botanists, effectively, you can take these tiny specks and tell the whole. And that's how Stephen Bradley was caught. And I, I love what you said about the fine detail because, you know, when you were talking about the apple that had the spiralled skin and you describe that beautifully in the book, you talk about Frida just going about her day getting Graham's lunch ready and then that apple comes back into play. And I actually found that absolutely haunting when I read it. Like it's that kind of stuff for me. I'm like it really brings it to life about this beautiful normal family and this horrible thing happened. So I, I just really loved what you said about the fine detail there. Thank you. And that's, I guess, that's a perfect example of what I'm looking for. I, my mother didn't really do that because she was a believer in the skin. And I guess also with six kids, probably <laughs> didn't have the time to do it. No. But, but in that, but kids that had, I mean, if you show me a kid, if you show me a kid from back then, with an apple core, apple peeled like that, pretty much I'll show you a loving family, a loving mother that's taken the time. It's not that my mother was not loving to do that, but, but, but the fine detail is the mother that will take the time to peel the apple for the kid is a mother that's paying attention to her child. So you can start to tell the whole from the tiny detail. Mm, and, you know, that money they won, like £100,000 back then, What was that life-changing money? I mean, that was a lot of money then. Yeah, God, yeah. I mean, it would be life-changing now, wouldn't it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it'd be like a million? To get the equivalent now, it'd have to be $5 million. Ooh, you know, it's, wow. like it's a lot of money. Yeah, and I'm, I imagine for the Thorns, it would have just felt like maybe tainted money. I don't know, tragic money. I, I don't know. I'm just thinking it would have just been... Maybe a dream turned into a nightmare, just very simplistically saying. It's certainly a dream turned into a nightmare. I don't know. They pretty much faded from public attention. I mean, they basically grieved, as you would, for the rest of your life. And I think all of us, all of us who've been parents at least, you know, my children are in their 20s now. But with the, the lives of those three, there was one or two moments when I lost track of them at the Royal Easter show. And you go, oh, God, I've got to go. Don't panic, don't panic. They've got to be here. They were just over there. Where, where, where? What went? What? Oh, oh there, Louie, you know, come here. All of us have had that experience that have been kicking around with kids. And in this case, it was just not, you know, oh, and then down, we're okay. It just kept going worse and worse until the terrible knock came on the door to say, he's dead. And the horror I think it was the father that had to identify his son. 
And I, again, I think he, he fainted, you know, just the horror of seeing your child like that. It's unimaginable. And of course, they wouldn't have really been able to know what happened to Graham because it's a month later. And it's believed, isn't it, that he would have died quite soon after he was kidnapped? Yes, the most likely one is asphyxiation with a possible complication of a fracture. I think he had a fractured skull at the moment. So it seems, as well as probably holding chloroform to his face, he'd also been hit on the head. He was in the boot. So there at Centennial Park, and Centennial Park is like uh, Central Park in New York, but more bushy. You know, back in the early 1960s, you go in Centennial Park, there are plenty of places you could be where you wouldn't be much seen by anybody. And so he would have, after chloroforming the child, Graham, um, you know, limping in his arms, puts him in the boot, drives north over the spit bridge, he pulls over, he makes the phone call on the corner of Military Road and Medusa Road, just above the spit bridge. There was a public phone booth there. And as he comes back and then... He takes him home. He goes home. He parks in the garage. And I think it was 5 p.m. that afternoon, he finally opens the boot and the kid's dead. You know, just just the, just shocking. So that he wasn't, I think, you know, it wasn't his intent to kill the child from the beginning, but he was, it was, I think from memory, it was manslaughter. And the and then that fellow, Stephen Bradley, was when, when he was convicted, was sent to Goulburn Maximum Security Prison. As soon as the verdict was announced, one woman in the back of the court cried out, good on you. The court immediately began clapping. The judge ordered silence and police had to restrain several people in the public gallery who kept clapping and crying out, good on you. As Des said, the verdict, guilty as charged. Mrs Thorne, by the way, broke down completely and began crying. And he died on the tennis court of all places. I think he was just 42 years old. But one of his one of his things was those that knew him basically said, you know, he didn't come across like a, you know, a, a shocking kidnapper, a sh- shocking man. And, you know, he'd absolutely done the, the most horrible thing. One of the things I was really interested in, and I remember it from quite a few years ago, reading it, was that something changed quite dramatically after Graham's kidnapping with the identification of lottery winners, wasn't it? I believe it might have been the next lottery. Next lottery, no more, no more identification of where they live, no more. I mean, and basically, after what happened to Thorne, who would agree to be photographed with their children? It was the loss of innocence of Australia. I think that in the annals of crime in Australia, this has been one of the dastardly crimes that have really shocked the people of Australia. We, who are usually normally happy-going, pleasant people, seem to recoil at the thought of a little eight-year-old boy being so brutally murdered and kidnapped. Before we go, I want to, you know, you've written a lot of books. I mean, you are very prolific, very popular. You know, you have written about a lot of characters, including good old Ned Kelly. He's held both as a hero and a Kaleskop killer. But, you know, it's been a while since you wrote that book. Do you think, is there any nuance possible with Ned Kelly? Is there middle ground with him? Because you either love him or you're like, he's a he's a scumbag. One of the more upsetting episodes in my authorial career, I was being interviewed by Neil Mitchell on 3AW. And Neil had given me, you know, from the 10.05 news to the 10.30 news, 25 minutes talking about it. And I'll never forget this, at about 10.27, this 
phone call. You know, we're taking calls from listeners. And this guy said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Constable such and such. And he said, how dare you? I said, what? He said, how dare you make money, you know, out of cop killer? Ned Kelly was a cop killer. How dare you glorify him? And I said, sir, you know, inside I was raging, but I was calm the, outwardly. And I said, I do not glorify Ned Kelly. What I'm saying is I, I take no view in the book whatsoever. I'm saying this is what happened. This is who he was. This is how the 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 massacre, the, the police killing at Stringy Bark Creek happened. This is this is who fired the shots. This is who these constables were. And I went into the wife of the constable when the word comes through that, you know, they found her husband and he's dead. And the priest goes to see her and says, listen, I'll do the identification, but you should never see. You should never see what happened, the face of your husband or anything like that. So I go through all that detail, including why Ned Kelly did what he did. The point that was made to me by the great late great Ian Jones is at Stringy Bar Creek when the Kelly gang broke from deep cover. Ned Kelly could shoot the cigarette out of a kookaburra's mouth at 100 yards on the fly on a dark night. He didn't have to. What, what happened? They broke from deep, deep cover and they said, throw down your weapons, throw down your weapons. Their intent from the beginning was not to murder cops. Look, so it's complicated. I say what happened. And when on that particular Kelly book, what I liked was the guy from uh, A Current Affair came to see me and I said, well, you've read the book. What do you think? And he said, I, I think he's the worst bastard that ever lived. What a, what a mongrel of a man. And the guy from... Uh, today, tonight, which I think was Channel 7. I said, what do you think? He said, what a hero, what a great man. They'd both read the same book. They had come to different conclusions. The best summation of Ned Kelly I ever heard, the guy that at Beechworth who played Ned Kelly for 25 years, who'd read every bit of Kelly literature said, I said, what do you think of him? And he said, he's somewhere between an heroic villain and a villainous hero. And I think that's the middle ground you're talking about. Thanks to our guest, Peter Fitzsimons. Peter's latest book is The Opera House, published by Hachette Australia. Details will be in the show notes for this episode. We'd like to thank the following people for their support on Patreon. Jess Chapman, Peter Robbie or Roby, thanks Peter. Daniel, Danella Lye, Kate O'Mealy, Josie Anthony, Chloe Garland, Jess, Meg Lowe, Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. 
They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.